From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, some of you may know, before I became the podcaster that I am today, even before I got into the world of lawyering or business consulting, any of those things, the career that I had before that, or I guess maybe the odd jobs that I would do, was in voice acting, voiceovers. That was kind of a dream of mine, to be able to use this voice, to tell stories, to be able to do a little bit of, um, have some fun and do a little bit of interesting things with my voice. And so, when I had an opportunity to do an interview with somebody else from that world, someone else that knows a little something something about voice acting and voiceover work, of course, I was extremely interested. And that is today's guest, Mr. Eric Ng of HKIAC, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center. As we've said, we're still in Hong Kong for our episodes um, through the end of the season. And so what you will hear today is a conversation with myself and Eric where he talks about his work leading to international arbitration, and especially the HKIAC, but also his interest and a little bit of his background in the world of voice acting and voiceover work. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I think it's a really fun one. Of course, as always, if you're enjoying the show, if you're enjoying Tales of the Tribunal, please make sure to like and subscribe. Leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. If you see this on LinkedIn, leave us a comment, say hello. If there's anything you want to share with the show, drop us an email at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Or just share the show with a friend or colleague. It's really the biggest way that you can help the show and helps our community grow and helps us have more of these conversations. So not too long of an intro today. Thank you for joining in and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, so I know you're thinking, Chris, surely it's been several weeks. You must now be back in Europe or maybe the United States, somewhere else. You'd be incorrect, listeners. I'm still in Asia. I'm still in Hong Kong. And it's not even Hong Kong Arbitration Week. I'm still just enjoying the sights, scenes, and time with folks here in the uh, in the, the great venue that is Hong Kong. So with me today, I have Deputy Secretary General of the HKIC, Mr. Eric Ng. Eric, welcome to the show. Welcome to Hong Kong. Thanks for uh, well, thanks for welcoming me, welcoming me and uh, you know, so He's hiding it very well. Eric was a, one of the busiest man men in town last week, um, and so you know, thank you for being here. And uh, you sound uh, well rested. I finally had a weekend to get over it, and you know, uh, legs was starting to finally get some feeling back in my legs. So you know, that's that's always a good thing, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, look, Eric. Uh, so uh, before we jump into it, uh, let's start off with the question that we ask everybody: um, Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Oh, uh, thanks, Chris. Um, that's actually a really difficult question. So who am I? My, my name is Eric Ng. As, as Chris had said, I'm Deputy Secretary General of the uh, HKIAC, or Hong Kong International Arbitration Center. 
Um, I'm technically from uh, the U.S. I was born in New York, um, in Flushing, Queens, as most Asian Americans are, are born in, on the East Coast, um, and grew up uh, most of my life in the U.S., but then about half my life uh, here in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, I did, I've done a lot of things. Uh, I was an actor, I was a bartender, I was uh, in IT and marketing. But these days I find myself working as a, at the HKIC in dispute resolution, um, doing arbitration, handling a lot of our um, arbitration case matters, as well as you know, special projects and a lot of our IT and, and te technical development here at the center. Fantastic. Um, well, look, there's a a lot of threads to pull on there, so let's just take them sort of uh, one by one. Um, before any of the international arbitration stuff, did you know you always wanted to be a lawyer, that you wanted to go to law school and do that kind of stuff, or what's that like? Yeah, I did, I actually. Um, I mean, probably starting from early high school, um, you know, I really liked the, I, I, I was really good at debate. I really liked doing debate club, and, you know, there was always that thought that, you know, uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, but, you know, life takes you, you know, different places at different times. Um, and that thought sort of got put a, to the side for a little bit. Um, so I spent a couple years out of college, you know, doing uh, some of the things I wanted to do. I uh, didn't necessarily make a lot of money, but um, it was uh, it was great to um, to, you know, take part in it. And then. I spent, um, then I switched over and I started doing uh, IT and marketing uh, and things like that. And if the thought of law sort of uh, faded for a little bit, and then eventually, you know, right around 2009, uh, financial crisis hit, and I had sort of an opportunity there to sort of change careers. And uh, I was 29 at the time. I think that probably gives away my age, but um, I was thinking. Uh, if I was going to switch, that was the time to do it. So I went into law school. Uh, it turns out um, I'm not bad at, at the law uh, and wound up uh, doing pretty well coming out and then worked as a barrister uh, in Hong Kong doing advocacy, uh, court, court matters, court cases. Um, and through that sort of get it, got my way into doing arbitrations. Uh, some of the first couple major cases I did uh, right out uh uh, of law school was uh, major construction arbitrations. Um, obviously, I, I was ferrying papers back and forth, so I wasn't doing any of like, the real hard work, but uh, that's what really got me interested in it. And uh, since then, been sort of building my career towards um, international arbitration. And then eventually, of course, culminating uh, about four years ago when I became uh, managing counsel of the HKIC, uh, and then later last year uh, as deputy sec. Well, great. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a very sort of complete uh, <laughs> um, um, overview of your your career and how you got into um, international arbitration. Um, you know, so, I, and you even sort of touched on there how you went from Queens to now here in Hong Kong. Um, I guess the thought would be, when you think about international arbitration, what do you think was it about, you know, appreciating you liked debate and were sort of interested in being a lawyer more generally. Was there anything particular about international arbitration that drew you to it? Um, yeah, I think part of it was because I am, you know, I, I was kind of someone who sort of lived between two worlds, right? So, I mean, having spent half my life in the U.S. and then half my life in Hong Kong, I always felt that sort of um, like I was, I belonged in both places, but I also didn't really belong in either, if, if that makes any sense. Um, and so, 
when I started doing domestic law, I was doing Hong Kong law, um, but there was a lot from the U.S. and European markets in, in terms of influences where, you know, it didn't really come into play when you started looking at Hong Kong domestic um, law. And so I, the international aspect of arbitration always intrigued me. So it was always what I was looking at when I did law school. I did a lot of these international moots, which got me really exposed to international commercial law, public international law, uh, investor state arbitration. And it was always this sort of um, reading, not just Hong Kong cases, but international cases, knowing and reading and learning about Europe and Asia and, and U.S. and combined with my sort of personal experiences. It was always something that I, I felt more attracted to than just um, the, the local cases. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with the local <laughs> cases, but but there, there, I guess it was just because there was an international part of me that it made sense that I would gravitate towards international law or international arbitration. No, I think that makes sense. And, um, you know, I guess uh, the one question that we've been fond of this, this season, we've got some interesting uh, answers to it. What do you suppose, you know, what's the alternate timeline, Eric, doing? If you hadn't become a lawyer, hadn't gone to international arbitration, any idea what you might have done instead? Or any, yeah. Me and the multiverse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I am. I'd like to imagine there's probably one version of me that's you know over over on Broadway doing um, you know doing theater shows like that. Uh, there's probably another um, version of me that's working in a startup or what was, what was a startup, you know, um, and working as, as sort of one of these, these tech bros. But um, honestly, I'm you know pretty happy with with the version of me that wound up in this world. You know, so you know, everyone seems to think that think about all the good versions of themselves. I know there's probably a, a dozen other ways where you know this story ends, you know, very badly. <laughs> and yeah. So, so I, I'm pretty happy to be where I am right now. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, there, there's a lot of passions in my life, and um, you know, it'd be, uh, I'm sure there's probably some other alternate versions of myself pursuing them um, with just as much vigor. Sure. And what I will tell you, Eric, um, I don't know if you know this, um, so that we had a guest earlier this season who gave a similar answer, at least to that first point, um, that they would have been uh, perhaps on Broadway doing theater. Um, and that is, uh, you know, a colleague at a different institution. That's Mr. Fasis over at the ICC. We, we were chatting about that when he stopped by the digital studio. So uh, maybe that's maybe arbitral Broadway or something. That's something we could play around with. Um, I, I think maybe Alex and I maybe get into the Les Mis duet at some point. That'd be that'd be interesting. No, I, I think there's a lot of crossover, too. I mean, you have a lot of people that you know, come from the arts, come from, you know, these sort of um, performing uh, environments. And a lot of it crosses over in terms of skills, public speaking, confidence, you know, uh, even down to sort of dealing with stress and breath control and stage fright and things like that. You know, there, there's an there's actually a surprising amount of crossover between those of uh, uh, people who go on stage and people who, you know, are, are you know, working in these sort of uh, advocacy or lawyer or institutional field. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the tribunal typically uh, does not prefer us to perform for them. But, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. There are a lot, there's a lot of crossover there um, in terms of um, those types of skill sets. So interesting. And, um, and we might have to come back to a couple of those other things you mentioned in terms of tech or um, things like that or, you know, a little bit later in the conversation. Um, you know, one thing, uh, well, I guess we don't want to bury the lead too much, um, and maybe we can start here and then and work our way back through some other interest and points. So you've been now with the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center for an appreciable amount of time. Um, 
what do you think, you, you, from your perspective, how does institutional work sort of differ from the other rules and what we might have in the field, whether that be counsel, in-house counsel, um, academics, other professionals, arbitrators even? You know, I'd be curious to get your perspective on that. Yeah, uh, thanks, Chris. And it's, you know, I, I really do love um, the work that I'm doing at HKIC, um, and primarily because it is, it is so different from what you do normally as counsel. Um, you know, when I was at the bar, um, when you're a barrister, you're a sole practitioner. So you maybe get, um, if, if you do a lot of arbitrations, you do maybe two, three, maybe half a dozen arbitrations in a year. Uh, you work at a firm. I mean, the firm's bringing in a lot more arbitration matters, so you're, you're looking probably maybe at about a dozen, perhaps two dozen arbitrations um, that you're working on at any one point in time. Um, at HKIC, I see approximately 300-plus arbitrations uh, a year um, coming through our, uh, you know, our institution. And so the biggest thing that I can say, the biggest difference you get from the institution is essentially that you're drinking from a fire hose, right? You're, sure. you're learning, you're, you're, but you're learning about arbitration at a much more rapid pace. And, you're, and once you've got a hold of that, you start seeing the development in arbitration from a macroscopic perspective. So instead of worrying about a single arbitration and the substantive arguments in there, we're focused pretty much entirely on procedural aspects. You know, what are you know, we seeing in terms of trends and, for example, in terms of complex arbitrations? What are we seeing in terms of trends of uh, industries? What are we seeing in trends of even, you know, conflicts or issues that are arising in respective arbitrators uh, over the course of time? Uh, these are things that you are going to be very, that are going to be very difficult to identify at a singular level. But once you start looking at everything in aggregate, and start looking at things when you're looking at hundreds of cases, hundreds of arbitrations at a single time, you start seeing the trends develop. You start seeing the patterns develop. Um, and so it's one of the greatest things that uh, I get from the institution is, is sort of seeing how, you know, there's this sort of um, pattern developing in terms of international arbitration and the evolution of that pattern uh, over time. And that's something which, you know, I mean, you wouldn't be able to get um, anywhere else. I bet that that's true. Um, I've never spent time in an institution myself, but um, one of the things, I guess, from your answer right there that comes to mind is what are some of the trends you've seen recently that you can talk about um, maybe during the pandemic, post-pandemic, or maybe the trajectory of the field um, more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I think I had the, I guess, the unfortunate uh, benefit of being in uh, HKIC for about two months when the pandemic hit. So, um, you know, my my job uh, over the course of the last four years has you know been significantly affected by the pandemic. But in another fashion, it's probably very fortunate for me because again, I was able to bring sort of a technical background when at a time when um, everybody was looking at how you do international arbitration when nobody can fly internationally anymore. Um, and we were sort of at the forefront of that in Hong Kong uh, when the pandemic hit because obviously it, we were one of the first to be affected by it. And so we were one of the first institutions that was approached by people saying, hey, what's going on? Uh, what's happening with my hearing? What's happening with this case? Am I going to be able to proceed? Um, and so, you know, we had a lot of things develop over the course of those four years in terms of that pattern that we, I was talking about earlier. Um, pre-pandemic, you were looking maybe at, you know, maybe 
20 to 30, maybe a little bit higher uh, in terms of percentage of tribunals that were comfortable um, going ahead with, you know, a say a virtual cross-examination of a witness. Um, you know, all things, all things else considered, you know, if they, if, if they could have traveled, they would have traveled. And although you had video conferences of witnesses, sometimes it was pretty far between. Um, now, over the course of the last four years, what we've really seen has been a much more um, concentrated use of virtual hearing technology. Now everybody's out of the pandemic now, right? So you don't have those situations where uh, you would have had hearings where everybody's in the same location, but they have to be separated in different rooms because of social distancing regulations or hearings where everybody has to participate from their hotel room um, or apartment. So we don't have those situations anymore, right? But now that we're out of the pandemic, we're starting to see a lot of the technologies and things that we developed over the course of um, the, the last four years uh, be used in pro uh, uh, in-person hearings now. So things like uh, electronic display of documents, things like remote transcription, things like um, you know cross-examination witnesses, it's um, almost unheard of now to have an in-person case management conference or an interlocutory application. Everything's done virtual. It's become mainstream. And that was really what we were hoping uh, for when we started developing this stuff and working with the um, companies to develop this stuff um, in 2020, that this be becomes less about, oh, we're doing virtual hearings to we're just improving hearings. And that has sort of extended towards a much greater adoption and uh, willingness to adopt uh, technology over the course of the last couple of years. I think you've seen, um, you know, the advent of tools like uh, HKIC Case Connect, uh, ICC Case Connect, which I will, I will say just for the purposes, we were first uh, <laughs> with that name. Um, and so if Alex is listening, I mean, we were first with that name. Um, uh, but now also, you know, SEAC Gateway and, uh, and a lot of other, uh, you know, institutions now instituting sort of um, online case management tools, online repositories, things to help uh, improve the flow of information, to help reduce the friction in the arbitral process over the course of um, the life of an arbitration. That only helps make things faster, makes things cheaper. Um, ultimately, that's what you want from an arbitration, right? So, you know... Uh, we're starting to see now that trend where technology is really enabling us to, to sort of focus in on you know, going into the, the core benefits that arbitration offers um, in respect of it. Well, that's great. Um, one, I think it's just interesting in general that uh, obviously how the market or, or the disputes market came to meet the moment. Um, and then I'm glad to hear from an institutional perspective, it sounds like a lot of those things are staying around and that we're not just sort of going back to, oh, well, pandemic is over. Let's just go back to doing what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I mean, things change, right? And, and you, you've, you've got to keep up with those changes or you, you, you wind up moving out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy as well because, you know, uh, it would have been a real shame to put all that work in over the course of the last four years and to not see anything come out of it. Um, but I mean, we're we're moving on, and it you know now we're talking more about you know digital dispute resolution, and there's other institutions looking at it. Some of the major international groups are looking at it. I think we're you know we're working quite closely with you know the Uncitral uh, Dispute Resolution in a Digital Environment uh, project uh, that's that's being run out of Vienna at the moment. 
uh, and you know we're working and cooperating with other institutions in respect of you know how we go uh, and move forward with you know developing arbitration. I mean, obviously, one of the things that you know we got a, a lot of discussion about, especially over the course of the last say month, um, has been the use of AI. And so, you know, how is AI going to affect arbitration? What are sort of you know um, green light, red light situations where AI can be used? Uh, and you've got a lot of groups that are, are really looking into it. So we're really starting to see arbitration really catch now onto that leading wave of, uh, of technology, and, and I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes. Uh, I think a lot of us are, you know, um, especially to that AI point. Um, I know that there was like at least two, maybe more uh, panels last week at Hong Kong Arbitration Week <clears throat> that focused on just that. Um, and I got to say, you know, we could, we could pause here on this topic for a moment. Um, I find the conversation a little bit baffling <laughs> to some extent because in the one hand, um, and maybe this has been a, a child of the Internet to some extent and growing up with some of these tools, um, I, I, when I think about AI, it's called artificial intelligence, but it's not quite that really. I mean, it's, it's sort of, I'd like to use the analogy of it's um, basically a really advanced word calculator that can sort of reprocess the words and sort of looks for patterns, but it's not making any sort of decisions at this point. And so when people are saying, oh, well, we've got to know when it's being used to disclose, to make decisions and stuff. And it's like, it's not though, really. <laughs> and if you are using it that way, maybe you should not be appointed in the first place. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, um, and, and I actually moderated one of those panels myself, so I, I fully understand, you know, the concern that people have. And you're absolutely right. Um, again, maybe showing my age, but, you know, during college, you know, we, we would do a lot of work on, you know, at the time what we call expert systems, um, which essentially is the precursor to AI. But the fundamental technology behind it is the same. And it's essentially a, a recursive algorithm. It's an algorithm that basically goes through the same um, process over and over again and changes one variable or one factor, you know, each time it runs. And, you know, the, the advantage of it, obviously, is that it can do millions, if not billions of calculations at uh, in, in a single second, and so it can it can run through a vast amount of, of factors. But it's not thinking; right. it, it's applying an algorithm, and it's using you know, um, without con trying to confuse your audience, Bayesian algorithms to basically you know to, to give a sort of f a fuzzy value to something, which it, it can be within this sort of you know um, tolerance level, um, and that's continuously runs that algorithm over and over until it finds something which you know it, it's got a pretty high confidence rate in but it's not thinking it doesn't know what you're saying it, it, it's looking at patterns right and so you know it, it's a, I think the confusing thing has been is that while this has always been the situation of AI which is why it's always been used in things like document discovery and, and sort of predictive text and, and these sort of things where, you know, it's looking at patterns and able to identify patterns based off, off of history. You know, what's made it different and what's really sort of made people worried is that the fact that they're able to do it now in natural language, right? And so even though it's not thinking, it's giving you that smoke and mirrors effect of making you think that it's thinking, right? right? And, and that's what's really sort of freaking people out now. It's... You know, it's it's like the uncanny valley effect when you watch uh, when you watch these 3D animated movies. Right. You know, if it's somebody, who, if it's Woody from to Toy Story, right. then you're not going to you, you you feel fine. 
But if you start making it photorealistic and suddenly it starts to look like a human, there's just something off about it yeah. that, you, that makes you want, that, that, that freaks you out. And I think a lot of the NLP and L, uh, LLM stuff like with ChatGPT is what's freaking people out because it just, it's, it's looking a little bit too close to, to human. Yeah, and I think um, the, the speed too also because it sort of almost creates the impression as if it is having a conversation with you or thinking and um, the more that it sort of mimics uh, and maybe that's exactly what you put your finger on it is that it, it, it resembles humanity without being humanity and I think the evolutionary part of our brain just doesn't know how to make sense of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's a back part of your brain that's going like danger Will Robinson danger. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly that. Um, and so, anyway, you know, there's uh, we won't uh, reproduce that panel uh, here, but you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, when when people talk about this idea that it's, that is anywhere close to replacing lawyers at this point, I think that's kind of the wrong question. Um, I think it's more lawyers that know how to utilize this technology, sort of um, replacing lawyers that just refuse to. In the way that, you know, imagine if there was a lawyer today that didn't use the internet, <laughs> that would kind of almost be malpractice to some extent. Yeah, and, and a lot of discussions are really the same. I think you probably had these sort of same discussions when, you know, um, when email first came out. All the lawyers were suddenly saying, it's like, well, what am I going to do? Um, are they going to replace, you know, the typing pool? Well, I mean, yes, it did, but it didn't replace the lawyer. And, you know, and the lawyer says, well, what about my hourly rates when I, you know, if I have to do stuff through email instead of typing? Well, you know, my hourly rates are going to go down. Well, yes, they did. You were able to do other things. You know, AI is pretty much the same. You know, it's, it's something which will allow you to um, get to things faster. It'll let you do some of the boilerplate stuff faster. It's not going to replace your thought process. It's not going to replace your, your decision making. So from a counsel's perspective, yeah, your hourly rates probably will go down. But, you know, you'll, you'll be able to do other things with, with, with that time. And it'll allow you to focus pr uh, more on the actual, you know, the, the counsel advocacy aspect of it. So I actually don't see anything wrong with that. You know, if, as long as instead of worrying about how it's going to replace lawyers, is lawyers just need to figure out how they're going to use it. Just like they learned how to use email, just like they learned how to use Westlaw or, or LexisNexis when they were doing Boolean searches and, and, and things like that. It's just another tool for, for, you know, people to learn. And for arbitrators, you know, it's a lot of just knowing that just like we had the same discussion you know, with tribunal secretaries. When tribunal secretaries were first being proposed, people were worried, well, the tribunal secretary is going to replace the, the arbitrator in terms of decision-making. You know, they're going to write the decision. The arbitrator is not going to think about it. And you know, we're not going to be able to know whether or not the arbitrator has actually thought about the, the award. And you see tribunal secretaries used all the time now, right? Because they are able to get those costs down because they are able to do things much more effectively and efficiently in terms of the factual background, the procedural history, the boilerplate, and all this stuff. And it allows the arbitrator to actually think about, you know, what they have to think about, you know, the, the, the points of issue in law and their decision. And AI is going to help with that as well. As long as you're just not saying, hey, ChatGPT, write this award for me. No, and I think that's right. And that's, I guess, why um, it's kind of been the, the point that I've been making about you know, okay, so we write into these guidelines that have been coming out, and um, and I've been you know looking as a member of the, uh, the Silicon Valley Arbitration Mediation Center, um, the guidelines that were put out there. Um, you know, people are kind of obsessed with this idea. Well, you have to disclose when you're using it, and you know that again, that's a weird question to me because you know, okay, let's just do a thought experiment here. What if actually there was like a super secret AI that's been in existence since the '40s, and actually all the awards that have come out have actually been rendered using AI? Or, or with the usage of AI, 
does that somehow make all those awards now bad and wrong and the arbitrators did the wrong thing because they didn't disclose it? I, I don't know. I don't think so. At least not in my view. Well, I, I mean, the only thing I, I would say to that is, you know, I, I wish they would have disclosed that AI earlier because then I, I would have only had to deal with one uh, arbitrator <laughs> instead of the, the hundreds of arbitrators I do have to deal with. Probably would have made things easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll step from there. Um, you know, I, I, one more question, I guess, before as we move from, uh, you know, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center um, in particular. You know, I guess um, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, this idea of greater collaboration across institutions. Um, I wonder, you know, sometimes there at least can be this perception that every institution kind of likes to have its, you know, silo and its territory. But I wonder if there, what, what are some things that you think, or maybe some areas that you think institutions can work together on, and, and how do you do that? We have sort of this luxury with with the institutional level of, in, of international arbitration where um, we're not necessarily in competition with each other. You know, um, we're unlike, you know, the commercial environment uh, where everybody's sort of trying to grab a piece of a certain market, right? And they're trying to make a sale. For us, you know, that sale takes place years before we even get involved. Um, it, it takes place when someone enters uh, HKIC or SEAC or ICC into their arbitration agreement. And so from our perspective, you know, the more that we're able to raise awareness of international arbitration with commercial clients, the better sorry, the better the market is um, in respect of that. And you're basically growing the pie. Right. So, yeah, we're, we're quite happy to see, for example, two or three strong arbitration institutions in Asia, to see several strong arbitration institutions in, in Europe um, and, and in North America, because it means that more people are using it. And the more people that are using it, the more everybody's getting in terms of, uh, of arbitration matters. And, you know, we're a not-for-profit. So, you know, for us, you know, we, while we like seeing growth in case numbers, it's, it's not determinative of, you know, our, uh, of our bottom line. You know, so all of, all of the money that we make, we, we basically invest back into the, the institution. So for us, it's, it's less of a competition. And because it's less of a competition, there's much more room for cooperation, I think, with a lot of the institutions. And there's a lot of things that we can do in terms of cooperation. Um, obviously, marketing and, and business development aside, which are sort of the obvious things that you're looking at. I mean, there's also room in terms of, you know, working together on, you know, these things like the, these online case platforms, right? Um, you know, this is one of the things where we started that off at, uh, well, SEC actually started it off with, with HiQ. Uh, we were one of the, the, the big three, ICC, SEAC, and, and HKIC. Between those three, we were the first to, to get that up. But, you know, a lot of that has now been information which is shared with other institutions. Um, ICC and SEAC now are, are, are doing that, and you're seeing sort of the market move towards it. And so I think there's a lot more that we can do to make sure that as we're progressing down this timeline, as, as we're working towards improving the offerings and working towards, you know, these, the, these platforms, that we're able to work with each other, right? Because from a client's perspective, Right from the end user's perspective, the the and, and we're not talking about the lawyer. We're talking about the end user, right? The person who's put the arbitration uh, agreement into their contract. They don't care if it's you know uh, ICC case connector, HKIC case connector, CAC gateway. Uh, they don't care about you know well ICC does 
this way. SEAC does it this way, and HKIC does it this way. They just want to get the result, uh, dispute resolved as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. And the the, the easier that we're able to do that, you know, in, from an inter-institutional perspective, um, the better it's going to be for the end users, which in turn is going to make it more people willing to use arbitration in general. And again, that helps everybody. Sorry, that was a really long answer to um, uh, that question. No, no. And look, it's brought up uh, you know one more thing that uh, has also been on my mind a lot, um, really over the last couple of years, is that um, you know one of the panels that I listened to uh, last week was talking about um, you know what can be done to make arbitrations more efficient, to sort of streamline the process, and um, what clients want to see out of that. And um, and I I was kind of a little bit surprised to some extent, not too surprised, but. One of the, th- the ideas that I would like to see, or the, from a personal perspective, and I don't speak for Baker Hughes here, <laughs> um, is that uh, is this idea of the parties getting some sort of indication or idea of where of how their arguments are being perceived or weighed by the tribunal before you get all the way to the hearing, or even before you get maybe to document production, somewhere in the middle. Because my theory is, or my suspicion is, if parties have some indication of how that looks then they might be more prone or willing to settle, which is ultimately what the parties actually want is a resolution. And especially as a lawyer, I do get it, I understand, you know, there is a sort of a concern about due process concerns, about enforceability of the award, and that, okay, let's say arbitrator A and B felt like this at the midpoint or early on in the dispute, and then they never really changed. Okay, did they really actually think about it and consider it? I get that and I understand that, but I just don't know. If, you know, if the dispute ends up going another year, two years, three years, is it worth it? And, you know, if there's something that maybe we could, you know, be a little more innovative as a field to see if there is a way to sort of get that gut check in the middle and not just the beginning and end to see if there's a way to resolve these disputes. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a very interesting point. I, I wasn't at that panel, but, you know, it's, uh, it, it's not an idea I haven't heard before. Um, you know, the idea of basically giving a preliminary view uh, on matters. I, I know that in practice, we haven't really seen it done in HKIC um, pretty much ever. Um, and my feeling is the reason for that is that there's probably a lot of arbitrators out there in the market who uh, would be very worried about you know a, a bias issue. You know, if you if you were to say you know before document production, hey, by the way, I think claimant you know has a stronger point of this argument. I mean, most arbitrators I think would be expecting a, a notice of challenge from the respondent probably the day after to say that well, you've already made your mind up, and we haven't even seen the documents. Right, but and, you know what, what I what I say to those folks is that they already made their decision. They they already have a feeling about it. They're just letting the parties know what their feeling is about it. You know, I think that it's kind of like a little bit of a, a pantomime to say, oh, well, let's pretend that we have no decision until the end, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there, the, a lot of it probably is going to be chalked up to, you know, due process par- paranoia, which is actually one of those uh, biggest issues that we're dealing with that delays arbitrations these days. You know, Yes, there needs to be due process. Yes, there needs to be uh, parties have to be able to present their case. Um, but there's also situations where a party will take advantage of the you know the the arbitrators or the arbitral tribunals um, refusal to do that the process. The, the process. And so you know due process paranoia is a very real thing. 
Um, and we've seen it affect our cases, and we've seen situations where, you know, we even even us at the institution are just you know privately are, are you know just sort of saying to ourselves, hey, they need to move it along, right? Um, and the tribunal just keeps giving extension after extension. Um, unfortunately, you know, at, at HKC, you know, there's not much we can do about those situations, um, you know, aside from maybe giving the arbitrator the odd phone call. Uh, and these sort of provisions, one of the things that we're working on, actually, you know, um, uh, although, you know, we're, we're still in very early days of it, you know, is when we're looking at 2024 uh, rules, uh, the HKIC 2024 rules, uh, which we, we're working on at the moment, one of the things we're looking at are, are ways of how do we make it easier for an arbitrator to use these tools? You know, th- there's no doubt that, for example, an arbit- arbitrator already has the ability to say bifurcate proceedings or to adopt a procedure which is going to make things similar. To, to, there's nothing that would stop an arbitrator from doing what you're saying to say that I'm going to give preliminary views prior to document disclosure, and then you, know, you can use that stage to tailor your document disclosure how you wish, right? Because right. If, because these are the concerns that I have in front of mind, you know, and that makes it easier for you to to focus your arguments if you feel like you do need to focus them. Um, and we're just looking at ways of how we can make that clearer, to make that more expressed in the rules, to give co- arbitrators more confidence uh, and allow them to sort of uh, feel more um, empowered to make these sort of decisions. Right. No. And uh, look, th- that is yet another topic I, I've, I've touched on here that um, we've touched on here that we could spend in the next several hours, at least I'm sure, talking through it. So uh, so we'll, we'll let that let lie there for now. Um you know, Eric, I realize that, you know, the time is actually going quite quickly. Uh, let me ask this question of you. Um, wh- are there any other things in the field or in the, you know, international arbitration world or disputes world more broadly that you're working on that you're interested in you want to share with the folks at home? Or, Well, I mean, we, we I did mention we're, we're working towards the 2024 HKIC rules um, re- revision. Um, that's obviously sort of a, a big thing for us uh, because the last time we – uh, updated was in 2018, right. uh, and the 2018 rules actually have been have been working really well for us. Um, you know, we they were very fortunately, very luckily, future proofed, um, so we didn't have any issues with say virtual hearings or use of online repositories when when those technologies came up. Uh, so when we look at the 2024 rules, we're probably not looking at a, a huge sort of major rewrite, but. Um, you know, we also want to make sure we're future-proof. We also want to make sure that, you know, over the course of the next five years, you know, these rules are going to still be usable and suitable to adapt to uh, anything that might be coming up in the next, you know, you know, four to five years. And, you know, that requires us to maybe break out the crystal ball a little bit. Um, but, you know, I'm very, very uh, excited about it. It's something that, you know, we at the Secretariat have been working in close connection with uh, our Rules Revision Committee, um, who have done an amazing job over the course of the last year to help sort of um, develop the next version of these rules. And so over the course of the next, you know, six to 12 months, we'll be working very closely on that. I mean, we're also, you know, and I'm able to say this now that we're, I've had a weekend between Arbitration Week <laughs> and, and now, um, you know, is ICA. Uh, the next uh, ICA Congress is, is going to take place from 5th to 8th of May in 2024. Um, and that's obviously, you know, an order of magnitude more complex than what we did. We just did with Arbitration Week. Uh, we're expecting uh, a lot of people here, and we really want to make sure we put on a good show um, for uh, for everyone. And I mean, for those of you listening out there who haven't had a chance uh, to come over to Hong Kong for Arbitration Week, please uh, try and set aside some time to come over in May. 
uh, for ICA because uh, I, I, I can guarantee you we are, we're working very hard to make sure that's a, uh, a, a bang-up uh, um, conference for you. So those are the two major things um, that we're working on for 2024. Past that, you know, we're always still looking at sort of technology uh, technology initiatives, what we can do, uh, and in particular, what we can do with, say, our Case Connect system. Uh, what sort of our you know 2.0 uh, look like, and you know, I, I, I'm heavily involved in that, so uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to uh, seeing what we can do with that platform now that you know it's seen uh, a lot of use and, and it's proven to be quite popular. Um, and then, you know, and that sort of takes me back to what I was doing before where, you know, we're, we're just doing tech, uh, we're, we're doing tech and looking at how we improve the platform and, and, you know, get it out to the next stage. Well, that's right. And, um, and maybe that's a good uh, way to sort of wrap up this segment of the conversation. Um, you know, uh, in your introduction, you talked about your sort of interest in tech, um, your role sort of inherently deal puts you in contact with tech quite a bit. Um, what is it about technology and the, the evolution in technology uh, that, that sort of excites you um, and you know, gets you involved? I mean, I think, I think a lot of it for me is just sort of breaking sort of the, the norm, breaking boundaries, uh, breaking rules. I, you know, for, for someone who's a lawyer, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> that may not be the best answer, but, um, but I was always interested in sort of the, you know, status quo the paradigm and how that sort of came about and what we could always do to sort of change it so i was you know i was very much you know back when i was still when i was doing tech looking at sort of um that sort of progressive breaking the paradigm kind of uh situation of course you know this is someone who went through college and you know formative years of of his career during the dot-com era and and the dot-com boom where startups were doing that you know left right and center right right? and you know 70 to 80 percent of them faded out but then you also have you know a a fair bit of them have which have genuinely changed how people live Uh, google you know amazon you know the these sort of uh, platforms that that are there now, and you know, it, it, ultimately, it, it would be nice to have something like that for the legal field for arbitration. Something that really sort of breaks that paradigm. You know, there's this concept of friction in, in the international arbitration process, where you know, there's stuff that the arbitrator is doing and the counsels are doing in order to, in order to get their case heard and decided. Everything else outside of that is friction. Everything the institution does in terms of constituting the tribunal, in terms of sending um, documents to the the tribunal, in sort of the courier delays, um, all of that is friction. And if we can get ourselves to a frictionless process, um, I feel like that would change the paradigm for international arbitration. Obviously, it's a lot easier said than done, but it's something which you know, you know, just with a lot of the tech experience, is something that it's not impossible. You've seen it done, happen. You know, with 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 other uh, companies and in other industries, disruption occurs and completely changes how people do business. It completely changes how people um, conduct business or, or commerce. You know, how you buy things. You know, um, I feel like there's something like that coming for arbitration. Uh, maybe, probably, pretty soon. Interesting. I like that cliffhanger. That's like a you know sort of cool you know put a pin in that and come back in five years sort of sort of answer. Um, well, look, uh, let's uh, let's let's turn the page a little bit and let's get to the really uh, you know hard hitting questions. Um, so uh, as we as we make that shift, um, it sounds like someone with a lot of different interests, a lot of different ways. Like we've mentioned, you could have um, gone into your professional life. 
I wonder, have there been any sort of uh, professional influences, role models, uh, guiding forces, principles, anything like that that sort of guided your career? Yeah, I mean, there was, when, when I first got into the workforce, um, doing t- uh, in, into marketing and, and, and technology, my, my first boss, you know, I, I remember going to him and saying, you know, hey, you know, this one platform that, that we just launched, it's, it's too busy and now it's overloaded and the servers can't handle it. And he came to me and says, like, is that a bad problem to have or is it a good problem to have? You know, and he said, well, I mean, obviously it's a good problem. He said, well, if it's a good problem, then we can work on how, you know, how we fix it. You know, and that's something which has stuck to me um, for quite a long time. So, I mean, uh, Ashok, if, you, if, you're, if you're out there, which I doubt because he doesn't do arbitration, you know, um, he was probably one of the, the first role models. In terms of law and arbitration, you know, um, when I first got into law school, I started doing a lot of these moots, these moot competitions. And I was working with a moot coach, uh, Rajesh Sharma. Um, who was at City U Hong Kong at the time? He's in Melbourne now, um, but you know we we had a really good run of moots with him as coach uh, you know, when when I was there, and I did something like ten moots over three years. Um, w- yeah, it was. <laughs> I, I I was a little nuts um, at, at the time. I mean, um, but it was it was a lot of fun, um, and Rajesh was a big reason for that. So. It was uh, so he was a big role model, and then obviously back uh, once we get into arbitration, you know, there, there's just so many um, sort of role models that have sort of helped me along uh, in terms of my arbitration career. I mean, from uh, Sarah Grimmer, who you know first took me on uh, at HKIC, uh, to Neil Kaplan, who's you know given a lot of guidance, um, not just for me but for the arbitration ju- industry in yeah, Hong Kong. Know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this this little well, little known person. Um, yeah, but you know, no, he he's he's he he's you know done a lot to sort of help give me helpful guidance over the course of the last um, you know last few years, and, and I'm eternally grateful for that. So I mean, th- the only reason I'm here is because. You know, a lot of these people decided to take a leap of faith on uh, some kid from from New York. So, um, you know, ultimately, you know, a lot of that is on them. Sure. No. Um, and that, that that's great. That's exactly what we were sort of trying to get at with that uh, that question. Um, keeping along with uh, getting to know you a little bit, uh, you know, what's on your bookshelf? What are you reading right now? I am an I'm probably the biggest nerd and geek that you know. Um, okay. So there's probably, if you look at my bookshelf, there's probably a lot of a, a lot of Star Wars, a lot of Star Trek stuff on there. I mean, a lot of uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, fantasy novels. I'm a huge fantasy fan, so I, I you know, um, have the entire uh, Wheel of Time series on my bookshelf. The entire Game of Thrones, except for Winds of Winter. Because George R. R. Martin will never get that book out, um, uh, is is on my bookshelf. You know, Brandon Sanderson, uh, is, and a lot of his stuff is what I'm reading at the moment. Um, I, I mean, most people in my position would probably be talking about like classical literature or something, <laughs> but you know, I I guess I got to be honest, and you know, but I'm a huge fancy, huge sci-fi um, guy. And comics so, too, or comics too, okay. yeah, comics too. So um, DC or Marvel. Uh, you know, that's not a fair question. <laughs> that's not a fair question. Um, yeah, I mean, DC for animated and Marvel for the movies. I think you know. Uh, I, th- yeah. I think that's probably a- as diplomatic as I could be about that. 
No, that's fair. No, no, and look, uh, no, no judgment because the, the host is a nerd, so I can appreciate you know all of those references there. Now that, that that's really cool. Um, keeping right along with that same sort of theme, uh, maybe and maybe we'll do as a compound question. Um, what kind of uh, music are you into? Any favorite artists, genres, etc.? And then are you watching anything interesting on Netflix and the, the usual uh, streaming platforms? Yeah, so um, in terms of music, it's, it, I mean, if we're just talking strict music, then I'm probably more like sort of 70s prog rock, kind of like Pink Floyd, that sort of that sort of genre, but I'm also a huge fan of musicals. And so obviously with the, the theater Long background, rain, yeah. oh yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a weird mix sometimes on my Spotify playlist. I think, I think the... Um, my, the Spotify AI has no idea, you know, who I am because it's one second it's, you know, it, it's "Wish You Were Here" and the next it's, you know, it, it's a song from Wicked and it's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and Spotify you can you can almost just physically see it going. I have no idea what to recommend you. Just throwing its hands up at some point, yeah. Um, no, I, I took my partner to see uh, to Wicked last year, um, and it was her first time seeing it, and uh, and she's like, "Oh my gosh, it's so good!" And I, I know. <laughs> Um, but, but no, sharing that theater kid best sort of background um, that you're, again, we're speaking the same language. Um, and then are you watching anything interesting on Netflix, uh, Hulu, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, yeah, no, um, I mean, you know, obviously a lot of the Marvel TV series I'm, I'm watching, there's, um, you know, a lot of the shows that I, I was really into, uh, oh, I guess actually on brand for, for your podcast, I think one of the things I've been watching has been Only Murders in the Building with mm-hmm. with Martin Short and Steve Martin. So, you know, um, which is fantastic because um, them with Selena Gomez, you would think that's a combination that would never work, but somehow it does. Oh, and yeah. uh, it's a great, uh, great series and, you know, a little bit on point about, you know, a, a, a true crime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Fair enough. Um so, uh, you know, just a couple more questions here as we get ready to wrap up. Um, let's say you were approached by um, a, a, st- a recent graduate, a student, or somebody that's looking to break into international arbitration, international disputes, and the like, um, and they're asking you for advice. What sort of advice would you give them? I mean, if, it was, if they were still in law school, um, one of, I mean, I made a conscious choice uh, because I came to the law late. I, law was my third career. And so I went into law school, you know, knowing I wanted to do law school. Um, and I put in a crazy amount of time, more than I've ever put into basically that first year, first two years of law school. And, and I told you I did something like 10 moots um, yeah. in, in, in the three years I was there um, with the knowledge that, you know, it was going to pay off in the end. Um, so every moment, every second, every minute, every hour that you're investing um, basically during that formative stage of your career is something which is going to pay off dividends down the road you know and uh, it is it is really an investment so that's really all I would um, you know be able to say to them uh, is that yeah I I did really well but I also I I put a hell of a lot of work in um, in in the first uh, few years um, and that's not to say I'm not putting work in now, but <laughs> but a lot of the stuff where which I'm doing before um, is helping make that process a little easier um, now now that you, know, you you've had a little bit of experience. Otherwise, you know, it's I, I would just I would just say you know there are going to be there, there are going to be breaks, there's going to be ups, and there's going to be downs. Um, you know, and you're going to have some pretty big ups, and you have some pretty big downs. Um, and just 
don't get too excited when you have the up and don't get too depressed when you got the down because it, it will cycle back. Well, that, I think that that's great advice. And I, and I want to make sure that the listeners sort of pick up on a little bit of nuance there. You know, part of the value of putting in that hard work and time is not only getting the competitive advantage and being, you know, you know, awesome at what you're doing, but doing that amount of time also helps you realize that, oh, I actually hate this. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. You find that out way sooner because you're putting in so much time and you can kind of say, okay, I'm going to invest this time somewhere else. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if, you're, if you put in 23 hours a day, I mean, you're obviously going to hate anything that you're doing. But, um, but if, if you're still hating it, probably um, after an extended period of that, you realize maybe this isn't for you. you know? But, hey. I'm an example of that being not necessarily the worst thing. I mean, again, um, you know, I, I, I've switched around and done different things in my life. So, you know, it's the one thing in Hong Kong I would say is like people seem to want to do the law a little bit too early. Huh. Um, they, they, they're coming right out of high, high school and they're going to college and they're going into and they're immediately going into a training contract or, tr- or a training for the bar. I, I don't regret coming into the law when I did because when I did, I a knew it was what I wanted to do, and B, I had a lot of real life experience to help back it up. Um, and so, you know, it is something where you know, if you want to make a change, you know, do it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I, I agree. Um, I think that that life experience really sort of helps you uh, manage your expectations, right? And I think also know what you're getting into. Uh, that you know, sometimes you you will see suits and Harvey Specter and you know all these sorts of you know or you know Perry Mason's now a dated reference, but you know like Law and Order kind of stuff, and that people think that that's what practicing law is. I mean, and there are you know flashes of moments like that, but most of it is spending hours upon hours on your own, sort of grueling through stuff, and and you have to be sort of okay with that. And I think if people aren't really informed about that, they kind of go to law school and they sort of a uh, the dissonance <laughs> when they see what it really is can be sort of uh, uh, great. Yeah, I'm sorry, but ain't nobody's going to look as good as Harvey Specter does after um, you know a- after you know a whole week of discovery. I'm sorry, yeah. that, that's probably the most fan- you know in terms of sci-fi and fantasy, Suits might be the biggest fantasy there is. <laughs> no, yeah, but I mean, I remember this, that was on um, you know you know years ago, and I, we all kind of wish that you could just kind of walk into a conference room, <laughs> throw some paperwork on, it's like ah okay, and it's wrapped up in like you know a couple hours, and it's just uh, that that yeah. never that literally never happens. <laughs> Even when you have a slam dunk case, yeah. that never happens. Um, Okay, uh, so, so, so final, final questions coming up here. Um, let's say it's 5 o'clock on a Friday. Um, you can wave a magic wand to do whatever you want. Uh, m- money, time is no factor. How do you spend that weekend? Uh, honestly, uh, it's going to be a really boring, qu- boring answer these days with family. Um, sure. my, I have two young girls, uh, six and three. I have about five years before neither of them want to talk to me anymore. Um, so I'm just taking every opportunity I can to spend as much time as I can with them. That's great. And I'm sure they'll still want to talk to you in five years. <laughs> no, um, that, that, that's great. Um, okay. Well, look, uh, you know, you've given, out, you've given some shout outs um, and tips of the cap while we've been talking. But um, any sort of final uh, waves out to the audience that you want to give before we get out of here? Um, yeah, no, just make sure you, you come over to Hong Kong in, in May for, for ICA. I'd love to see you. Um, please feel free to reach out to me, uh, and I, I'd be happy to show you around. I think Hong Kong, um, especially over the, the, the course of the last week, has really sort of done a lot to um, you know, show people that we are back and you know, we are uh, still a very vibrant uh, city, and I really, really 
hope people get the chance to see that personally. And actually, you raise a great point there, and I mean, we'll uh, use that that final point to sort of conclude here. Um, Hong Kong is back. Uh, t- tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you. You know, the, there was a lot of stories, and there's been a lot of you know talk about Hong Kong, especially over the course of the last you know, several years. Um, and I think I don't think there's really any debating that you know Hong Kong has been through a rough patch uh, from you know 2019 through through to now, um, but. It's something that if you you only get if you live here is that Hong Kong always you know finds a way to bounce back. Um, that whether it is you know you know the pandemic and the restrictions and things like that, uh, which helped uh, transform sort of how we did arbitration um, to you know now where we have we're moving forward and using that uh, opportunity to sort of leapfrog us into uh, sort of the next stage. I think, you know, Hong Kong always has this tendency to bounce back despite what, um, you know, people say, despite what the press says. Um, you really have to see it to believe it. Um, so I, I would encourage people just to, you know, come in, you know, spend the weekend, spend the week here. Um, you know, if you have any questions after that, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'll, I'll take you around personally. Fantastic. Look at that. A personal invitation to sort of uh, to wrap up here. Well, look, I'll give uh, one shout out because she's been kind enough to let us use uh, some one of her conference rooms. Sherlyn Tung, uh, you know, friend of the show who's been on and will be on again here uh, in the next coming weeks. So thank you for letting us, uh, you know, sort of squat in your, your place, uh, Sh- uh, Sherlyn. So. Um, there's that. Uh, Eric, uh, time's gone by way too quick. Thank you for uh, coming to hang out. And uh, you want to sign us off? Sure. I am Eric King, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. So, there you have it. A really cool interesting and well vibey sort of session with Eric it was really interesting to see how his career had evolved over the years across different sectors across different interests and I think that's probably one of the most interesting things I find about um, interviewing people from our field from our profession is that very rarely is it that people are one-dimensional or that there isn't other interests or other things that they wanted to do in their lives and I think listening to that conversation with Eric hopefully that comes through. So if you're a younger practitioner that's listening to this or someone that's maybe making a a shift in careers or or practice areas, I think it's completely fine to have that sort of feeling, to do something else. In fact, I think that's strongly encouraged before you um, decide on your field. So in any case, that was a great conversation with Eric. We are now, listeners, to the final episode of Season 5 of the show. It's been a long time coming. The season has stretched out a little bit further than we would have hoped, um, but we are finally up to the final guest, which we will reveal next week, well, I guess when we release the episode. But it's someone that is well-known in the community that has contributed a lot, and I think you will um, enjoy the conversation with this person. So, um, without further ado, thank you again for listening. Thank you for tuning in, as always. Um, We will see you next week to wrap up, to bring you some holiday wishes. Um, I hope that all of you were taking the time to spend some time resting and catching up with friends and family, celebrating traditions, and looking ahead to 2024. And um, as we wrap up season five, thank you again for tuning in. Um, The show would not be what it is without you. I think it's um, a valuable conversation that we have each week and something that I think, um, at least I've heard from a lot of people, are useful conversations. So we're going to keep doing it and we'll see you um, in two next week. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mobetta Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. 
That's it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.